Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. We've been talking about self-esteem, and we've been talking about kind of redefining it. Instead of self-esteem, um, what's kind of the concepts we've been using instead? Self-acceptance, right? Okay. I'm writing. See, this is going to accept tasks. This is going to be a really fun night, isn't it? Acceptance. Okay. What else? Self-compassion. Self-compassion. Very nice. I love whiteboards. Yeah, like anything. It's going to just be a fun night. All sorts of stuff is going to show up on that. Self-acceptance, self-compassion. What else have we thrown out there? Self-approval. Self-approval? Sure, we'll, we'll put that in there. Okay. Week one, we talked about just kind of defining what it was. Remember that way back then? Week two, what did we talk about? Early childhood development and what kind of gets developed first in kids. Three, three parts of the brain. The first part, deep core, the head of the Reptilian. golf club. Reptilian. Reptilian. Second part is the sleeve that goes over that. That's the limbic. Third part is? You guys are the smartest class ever. This is just great. Neocortex in charge of all the thinking. Babies, young babies. We have a little baby here with us tonight. We're right over here. Okay, that little... Gal is thoroughly right now sitting in daddy's arms, developing which part of her brain? Limbic. And that is doing what? What's happening? Bonding, relationship. Um, and that's communicated mostly through? Action. Nonverbal stuff. Man, you guys make me proud. This is fantastic. Last week, what did we start to wrestle with? Mind maps, very good. Mind maps and filters. And like all good times, I ran out of time, and we're going to see if we can summarize some of this. What are some of the filters that get in the way? There was three primary filters. Values. Values are a little further down the list. Okay, I heard one over here. What was it? Deletion. Deletion. Give me an example of that. Haha, didn't know you got to define it, did you? <laughs> Deletion. Information we can't take in that we can't process because we're having thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of pieces of information each second. Again, if I were to ask you, what is the temperature on the bottom of your right big toe? Probably not really processing that with your conscious mind right now because it's just not all that important. So you just, you don't really need to put that into active, active memory at the moment. We delete. What else do we do? Distort. Distort. What is an example of that? When a leaf becomes a monster. monster. Exactly. The thing was going to get me, and my body truly (laughs) believed I was in peril. My heart was pounding. The adrenaline was flowing. I thought I was going to die, and my 16-year-old son saved me, (laughs) which is embarrassing. Deletion, distortion, and hey, generalization. This one can create some problems. Give me an example of that. What's a door? What is a door? Fantastic. You don't have to keep learning the same thing over and over and over again. So deletion, the the good side of de- or generalization. Sorry, the good side of generalization is 
We don't have to learn stuff, right? What's the bad side or the dark side? Say it again. If you think all men are bad. If you think all men are bad, and how would you get to that generalization? Exactly. So if one man has somehow hurt you, then you make this generalization that all men probably are that same way. They did a neat experiment around this. Um, I tried to find a video of it, but I don't know if there one exists where they take a door and they move the handle from the opposite side of the hinges to the same side as the same side of the hinges. And so people come up to it, and because of generalization, they open the take the door and. It, and if they, they just can't get through the door because they don't bother. How many of you, when you go to the door, go, okay, which side of the hinges on? Which side is the door knob? They coincide. Okay, I can do this. We just don't do that. We don't look for hinges. We look for doorknobs. And so when doorknobs get in the way, it just prevents us from being able to walk through. So generalization. We also had a whole bunch of other filters, um, values, experiences, memory, all those other things. And these filters do what? What happens with our mind map? Why? Where does the problems fall into this? It's a really bad question. I didn't phrase that very well, did I? What do mind maps do? Why do we have mind maps? There's a low murmur through the crowd. I'm assuming all of you are giving the right answer. I assume if it's a map that we're trying to get from point A to point B. Point A to point B. So maps, again, give us direction, but they actually do something a little bit um, more rudimentary than that. They give us our view of reality. They are a view or a representation of reality, right? So again, if you're looking at a map of Portland, but you are in Duluth, the map doesn't, isn't a very good representation of reality. Fair enough? And so the better the better or more accurate that a mind map is, the more accurate, the, the better the map is to reality, the better we can get from point A to point B, move through life. Does that make sense? And our maps, most people assume, are reality. That's where the problem comes in. This is how I think life is supposed to be. This is what's in my head. And now I'm going to spend tons and tons and tons of energy trying to make reality fit my mind map. Imagine how frustrating that is again. You're driving down the road and it's like this road should go through but there's a building in the way. What would be easier? Changing the map or moving the building? The rhetorical question. Please, there's really only one answer to that. Let's, let's change the map and in our map we should put, okay, we got to put a road around here to get, okay. And that's how we adjust. We become stuck, we become rigid, we become entrenched in our beliefs, which now prevent us from being able to be flexible, accommodate, adjust to reality. That's next week. We're going to be talking about ruts. We're going to be talking about rigid thinking and being entrenched and the cost and how and why and all that other stuff. But mind maps, filters create the map. This is all the stuff coming in. These are the ways that the map gets distorted, right? Deletion, distortion, generalization, directions. All that makes sense is that... What, what is that last word that do you repays? Yes, it's French, <laughs> repays. It, no, it's... 
that's not very nice. A representation. Oh. I can't spell representation, but I can spell repraise. <laughs> okay? Representation. It's a view or a, a mini world in our heads. It's a model. Yeah. And if you're Tony Stark, you can take that model and then disassemble it and come up with a whole new element that saves the world. That his dad planned ahead of time. I'm not that smart. It's not going to happen with you. Sorry, kiddo. It's just not going to happen. How long does it take to learn something new? This is the good news, guys. How long does it take to get proficient? 20 hours. So again, if this is the learning curve going like this, and you finally got you know, really good at it, this really steep learning curve here, to, to get to mostly good, you know, to get about there, where you've got most of the climb taken care of, because again, to get from here up to here, 20, 20 hours. How long does it take to get from here to here? Yeah, thousands of hours. This is wonderful. I'm just, I'm stoked by this and the research that's coming out of this because the capacity to change isn't necessarily as hard as we always thought it was. Now, again, it might come trickling in in seconds. So in this situation where I got to think differently and I got to actually imagine that I'm not as bad as I think I am and try on a whole new um, self-concept, you might do that for 30 seconds at a time, which it might take a little while here, but it's really only 20 hours. It's not that much. Anybody can do 20 hours. Anybody. And then people can spend the rest of their life worrying about the... Two favorite words that I've really, really, really started to enjoy. Things are just good enough. They work. We don't have to worry about panicking over the last 5% of life. Now again, please don't mishear me, don't misquote me, and don't go out saying, Paul says I can be a slacker, okay? <laughs> don't do that. That's not nice to me. But I am saying that you get it mostly there and then you just enjoy it and you don't sweat having to make everything perfect because nothing, nothing is perfect. It's just not gonna happen. Last week I talked about three tools to change. And I, and I kind of blew through them faster than I wanted to because we're running out of time so we're gonna spend a little time reinforcing those. What were some of those tools to start actually trying to change our self-concept? Man, in stereo. It's like a barbershop quartet out there. Childlike. Someone explain that to me, please. Childlike. Experiencing something like you've seen it for the first time. That's a good definition. Let's stick with that one. Give me an example of what that might. Hello? Give me an example of what that might look like. It's in my front pocket, Mitch. Okay? Anyone I have an idea? How do we have childlike curiosity? When someone cuts you off on the highway, you think, I wonder why they're in such a hurry. 
yes, rather than yeah, you know, yeah. Childlike curiosity. I wonder why that person behaved that way. I wonder why they chose to cut me off rather than they woke up this morning and intentionally waited for me to be right here and then cut me off. Curiosity. How does that, how does that impact our self-perspective? Okay, this is the how how we start to change this, okay? Connect the dots for me. How does that start to change our self-concept? And it has something to do with this right here. Changing the generalizations. That's what we had here. Explain more, please. Yeah. Yeah. What's the opposite of childlike curiosity? Cynicism. Cynicism. Ooh, I can't even spell cynicism. <laughs> cynicism. <laughs> curiosity versus cynicism. Explain. Well, if you're cynical, you think that people are always going to cut me off on the freeway. That's just the way life is. So that's just the way life is. Is that a person who's, who's saying, my map is the right map and everybody else is screwed? <laughs> right? Everybody else is screwing me. Or everyone else is screwing me, exactly. And so it is that rigidness. It is that my perception is the right perception versus a person who's curious goes, wow, I got a general picture of the map, but now I'm getting more detail. And what I thought this path went through here, oop, it's been washed out by whatever. And so now how else am I going to get around? And they recognize that, that my map is flexible rather than rigid or cynical, right? Does that make sense? There are individuals who go through life and what's it like working with, relating to a cynical person? What does that create for you as an experience walking through life with that person? I think I heard nine people say it. Exhausting. Is that exhausting? Why is it exhausting? Say that again. You have to fight to drag yourself out of their cynicism. You have to fight. Oh, life is so horrible, and everybody's going to cut me off. Like, well, no, that's not really how things are. And they just keep piling the cynicism on you, and you're like, no, don't forget it. It sounds like a lot of couples who are driving in the car, and the wife's reading the map, and the husband's going, no, that's not right. You're not reading it right. And they're driving, and a lot of energy's going back and forth, arguing over the map itself, right? Versus just enjoying the view, enjoying where you're going, enjoying the company of each other. If you're fighting over how to read the map, it's exhausting. Yes? So positivity breeds positivity. Positivity breeds negativity positivity. Breeds negativity. Negativity breeds negativity. I agree. Absolutely. 
All right, cynicism versus childlike curiosity. What was the second, second tool? Yes, Hanky. Experimentation. How does that help us start to change our self-concept and our maps? You can't change if you don't take a risk, but risks, Ben, are scary. You're nodding your head. Life is scary. Excellent. <laughs> Experimentation, it's not just enough to know things can be different. You actually have to apply them. This is the knowledge piece, this is the application piece. Um, the map says I should be able to get from point A to point B, but there's this boulder in the way. Well, how else can I get around here? And now I gotta try something. I gotta be different. You gotta try something that is not actually on the map. My wife and I, um, we constantly have this conversation because she is a rule follower and I, I haven't decided how I'm defining myself yet. Um, I'm creative. That's how I like it. That's a better way of phrasing it. Rules are approximations, and they're, they kind of steer you in the right direction, but they're not always, you know, applicable. And so... You follow the spirit of the law, not the letter. Thank you. Spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Um, that bugs my wife, drives her crazy. She can't stand it because it's like, yeah, I, I understand that that's what the map says, darling, but I got a feeling, I got a hunch. If we turn left here, we'll probably get to where we need to be faster. How many times am I right? Don't answer that question. <laughs> Don't answer the question. But we get to see a lot of nice scenery. It's just neat. Experimentation leads to more detailed maps. You ever thought about that? Here's your homework. Go home a different route tonight. I got people shaking their head like, are you kidding me? You can't make me do that, okay? Go home a different way. Try an entirely different route. Maybe a way you don't know. I'm teaching my son right now how to drive. I'm gonna be teaching my daughter soon how to drive too. She's <laughs> sticking her tongue out at me right now. She's looking forward to driving. Um, my son right now, he's also perfectionistic. He likes to make sure things are right. And he's, he's, gonna, he's a great driver. He's a fantastic driver. But he needs to know the exact way that we are going. And I'm telling him, we're at that phase in driving right now, which is, Dad, which way do I go? And I'm telling him, you need to go 205 South. Well, how do I get there? Read the signs. All right, there's a sign that says 205 South. Do I turn here? And my answer is, read the signs. I'm not saying yes or no anymore. I'm not actually being his backup. I'm not actually confirming or denying. And I know that he's going to take some wrong turns. He has to take some wrong turns to be able to figure out, oh, I made a wrong turn. What do I do now? And so he's going to learn all sorts of ways to get from point A to point B but his map's gonna get more and more detailed because he's experimenting and trying and learning over and over.
Does that make sense? What if we did that in life? I have a boss right now. I'm self-employed, so this is a story. I have a boss right now who's driving me crazy, and every time I encounter him, he frustrates me, and he doesn't listen to me. What would it look like if you apply, well, let's start here. What would it look like if you apply that principle first to, to Mr. Bad Boss? So you're not assuming or presuming he's going to be frustrated, but you actually might listen to what he says. What else in this piece here about Mr. Bad Boss? Say it again. You wonder objectively with empathy why he is having a bad day, right? That changes our whole posture internally. And then... What would experimentation, experimentation look like with Mr. Bad Boss? You try what, you try what he suggests you do. You try? <laughs> Did you say you actually try what he suggests you do? That's not good. <laughs> try what he says instead of fighting against it. Absolutely. See what happens. What else could you do? Try a nicer way. Um, I would say let's do everything nicer, but let's just try something different. Yeah, something different. Yeah. 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 One of the stories my dad told me growing up was, um, and I, by the way, I am apologizing because I think if you've listened to these series, you've heard the same stories about four times now. I tend to use the same ones because that's about all I got. I don't have any more. I'm trying to get some more, but um, I think this one was in Failure 101. My dad told me the story of um, two guys who were in boot camp together. One was this very aggressive, um, very not a nice guy. And he he vehemently hated anything that had to do with spirituality, religion, Christianity, anything else like that. Guy number two was a believer and made it his life purpose to tell guy number one everything you could about, you know, religion and spirituality and Christianity, all that. Great combination, you know, really fun. Um, guy number one made it his goal to make Guy number two, make his life as miserable as possible. And so he would just tear him down and make life hard. And, and just for months and months and months, this would, would go on until it kind of culminated in one night when um, guy number one takes off his big, huge, heavy army boots and chucks it at the guy's head, tags him upside the head. I mean, really hits him hard laughs about it, goes to bed, wakes up in the morning, and his boots are polished and sitting at the foot of his bed. Wow. Guy number one couldn't escape it anymore. Just couldn't do it. Ended up becoming a pastor. That's what happens. <laughs> so experimentation. Let's change the map. We don't always have to respond according to what is always predictable in there. 
as far as I know. Childlike curiosity experimentation number three is what? Best versus right. Someone explain that to me, please. Make the best choice with the information you have at the time. Does that mean it's going to be the right choice? No. Not always. It does mean that you are able to walk through life and to say, I am confident I made the best choice. Now, this again, this isn't permission to slack off and say, eh, I think I sort of got it. I'll just go for it. That's not what we're talking about. But you have to realize you will never, ever, ever, ever have all of the information to be able to make a guaranteed right choice. Now, lots of times you'll find out the best choice I made was the right choice. But again, if you spend most of your time here, you actually get stuck. It's like, I can't move forward in my map because my map is incomplete. It prevents experimentation and you get just stuck and rooted in some of this stuff. Best versus right. Is, is there a right choice? Is there a right choice? I would argue yes. I, th I, I think we live in a world of absolutes, and I absolutely believe that there, that's kind of funny. Um, couldn't, couldn't there be two right choices? Couldn't there be two right choices? In some circumstances, absolutely. I'm going to keep using that, aren't I? Yes, in some circumstances, there can be two right choices. In some circumstances, I think there's pretty much only one right choice. Apple, banana, or peach. Yeah. Yeah. All of them will nourish you in some way. Yeah. By the way, that's what makes life hard. Choices between good and bad, what should you choose? Yeah. Good. Choices between good and good? Make a choice. But making a choice, but that's hard because you have to give up something good. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people really get stuck, and it's like, I, I, I. I don't want to give up something good, so they try to do this little tightrope walking the fence thing, and they just get kind of mired in. Yeah? What about acceptance versus approval? Ask more of your question, I'm not tracking. Right. Say, you know, one, one would be like immoral, and the other one would be moral. Which one would you do? Yeah. I don't know. There, there's a whole thing around decision making and, and, and hierarchies and everything else like that, and they usually come back to values. What do you value? What is important to you? Because someone might say, my family is more important than my work, and someone might say, my values are work and power is more important than my family. But that goes back to values and leads to the broader question of where do you establish your values from? Is it just something willy-nilly? Is it based upon your feelings? Is it based upon what, what you know, Oprah told you to do or Dr. Oz or someone else like that? Or is it based upon some other source of truth? So it's a values question and it leads to all sorts of other stuff. But yes? Well, I'm just curious, like, wouldn't it sort of follow logically that if you were 
allowing God to lead you and making the best choice each, the best rather than the right, each step of the way as it's presented to you that he would lead you along a series of best choices to the right? Yes, that's a very good theory. If God's not going to give us the whole, whole picture, he's going to give us little chunks at a time. As long as we're continuing to be obedient, right, in those little chunks, the principle of the headlight I talked about last week, you only see 100 feet in front of you, you still progress. Here's the thing. Be nice to say that we can always make the best choice. Sometimes we get afraid, sometimes we get lazy, sometimes we get all sorts of other things which make it harder to make the best choice. Does that make sense? So it, 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 that I agree 100%. I'm always going back to practicality and what that looks like in real life. And sometimes it's not quite as clean as that. So how does this affect our mind maps and our filters? Sometimes you're in denial, so you forget things that you need to remember. Okay? Anyone else want to give it a shot? I think what, what we do with, uh, <clears throat> maybe when our best choice ends up being the wrong choice, what we do with that and how we navigate that can affect our mind. Yep. So we, we, we make a decision put it on my map, it doesn't work out, that risk thing again, we experimented, but a lot of times if we experiment and we go, crap, I didn't make the right choice. See, this proves oh, I'm not that good, and we give up. Versus we experiment and we go, wait a second, it didn't work out, but I made the best decision. I can give myself some grace. I can give myself some leeway, even if it didn't work out. Here's another strange thing about life that I'm still trying to figure out. You can get life figured out perfectly. You can get that dialed in and never make another mistake in your life and still have problems. Why? Because other people don't got it figured out yet. Exactly. And you can be driving perfectly down the road and someone can T-bone you, right? Is it your fault? Nope. This is the frustration about life, and I wish it weren't true. I wish it was like, okay, I got it figured out, and now there's this bubble. Stay away. Don't touch me, because I got it figured out, and I don't want you to smudge me. Don't, don't come in. So we just go back to the... By the way, I'm not so sure we can ever get it fully dialed in. I hope we could get really close, but I still think we live on this earth, and we struggle with that. But if we can go through life and we say, I did my best, I absolutely did, and it sometimes worked out and sometimes didn't, I'm going to course correct real fast, be curious again. And now, the way I view myself and the way I view life is just so different, so, so different. All right, those three tools right there. I'm going to add a fourth, and this fourth one... Um, Yeah, this is a good spot to put it. When we, most of the things tonight, most of the things um, in this series are going to be about reframing our minds, how to think differently, how to process differently. 
It's a lot of um, it's a lot of internal self-discipline and and mental kinds of exercises. When we sit with someone who is hurting, what are some ways we offer comfort to them? You're gonna have to yell it out here. You ask them to talk about it. Okay. Talk about it. So that we can invite them to talk about it. And I heard someone say, let's do that with empathy, right? What else can we do? You guys have been paying attention. I like it. Touch. We're gonna to call that nonverbal. What else can you do? Have compassion, sure. That's what you're doing. How would that look? Do you have an idea? Um, you, could, you could share a similar experience or dinner yeah. Share your heart with Distractions. Oh, there we go. Just spend time. What was what was all this going on over here? I said I was waiting for a guy to say it. Problem solving. Problem solving. Yep. We can fix it. Corollary is listening. Cor what? I said corollary or contradictory is listening. Listening. Yeah. These are, again, this is why I like being here, because you guys understand how to sit with people who are wrestling and struggling. When we try to change our mind maps, when we try to change our self-perspective, which of these do we tend to gravitate towards as we're trying to offer compassion to ourselves? What do we tend to do? Try to fix it, okay? That. Distractions. What was it? Avoidance. Avoidance. Yeah, that's a, we'll just put that up here at the top. Avoidance. Dinner, food. Where's food? Right here, food. Slash chocolate, okay? I'm gonna suggest that we end up building our mind maps out of the conversations we have in our head. We talk to ourselves all the time. That was a good thing, that wasn't a good thing. Why did you do that? What were you thinking? See, this just proves how bad you are because you know so-and-so said this and now it actually proves. We can't actually get that dialogue to turn off in our heads a lot of times, right? Even if we want to. That's why we turn to distractions and food and avoidance and trying to fix things. That talking at ourselves, just constantly talking at ourselves, that's only one. That's just one tool out of all of this. And so as we are starting to change our mind maps and as we're starting to adopt different tools and as we look at cognitive distortions and thinking patterns and everything tonight, our, our tendency is to try to talk ourselves out of what we are thinking and feeling, right? Sometimes talking ourselves out of it is the least effective way. 
sometimes what tends to work is number one is simply accepting that that is where you are at. My mind map is not very accurate right now. I now accept the fact that I've got a bad map. I now accept the fact that I have a bad map. And instead of trying to figure out, fix it here, how to change that, I'm just gonna say, I got a bad map right now. I trust, I know that I'm gonna get out of it. I'll be able to apply these tools, but I don't have to talk myself out of it right there. So you can sit in it, okay? Compassion, I don't know how you make eye contact with yourself, mirror maybe, but it's just that simple sitting with yourself. It's like, I, I got, I'm feeling this, I admit that I'm feeling this, this is where I'm at for a few minutes, and I will get better. This too shall pass. So is that forgiveness? Is that forgiveness? Anyone want to answer that question? I would argue that that is a piece of forgiveness, but it is not the full meal deal. I think forgiveness is um, much more. Number four. Yes. Acceptance slash um, just sit in it. That, that right there takes a lot of pressure off of, I desperately got to fix this, I got to fix it in the next five minutes. That's why when we start off the thing in tonight and every Monday, what do I ask you to do with your problems? Leave them at the door. Leave them at the door. It's an invitation to sit in it for just a minute and not actually try to fix it. Isn't that strange for a counselor to be standing up here saying, let's not fix your problems. Let's just, you know, see where they go. See what they do. Alrighty. Questions at all in all of this as I'm erasing and I can't see your hands? <laughs> Everyone got this? This going away? Yeah. Bye-bye. Cynicism. C-Y-N-I-S-I-S-I-S-M. Cynicism. <laughs> We'll call it creative spelling. <laughs> That's how I would have spelled it too. <sighs> okay, no questions then. Um, when I was first learning about much of this, I was married for only about under a year. So 19 years ago is when I was first introduced to some of this. I... I wish I had a do-over on some of the early stuff with my, my wife. I was as smart as a brick. I just didn't understand women, relationships, myself, any of this. My self-perception, my self-esteem was, was highly influenced by the concept of never, ever, ever inconvenience anybody. That was my mind map, okay? In fact, if we had a map, it would be wherever people are, I have to steer around them. That would be just never run into people and never, ever cause a road jam. 
my mind map. And then I was introduced to um, something called cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions is a, just a staple of cognitive behavioral therapy. It is a way of changing your thinking. Um, and it started to change my life. It's a starting place on how to change your self-perception, your self-concept. I don't think it's the full meal deal. I don't think it is everything that you need to do, but if you had to start somewhere, this is where it starts. For me, at the time, I was working as a janitor to put myself through school. So I'd go to school and I'd come back and I would clean a church and I'd do security. We lived next door in this really scary little house on Mount Tabor. It was, I mean, sketchy. The garage, when we moved in, was like that. We weren't allowed to go in the garage because they said they were going to tear it down. It's still standing, by the way. It's still there. I think they straightened it. Um, when we first moved into the house, there was no bathroom in it. The bathtub was stood up on end. They had torn it all out. Um, the church owned this property. So we had to walk down the street to one of the parishioners' houses and use their bathroom and use their shower to, to clean up for the first month of living in this little tiny house. This is what I put my wife through. I asked her forgiveness over and over and over again. Um, so this little house was, was where we cut our teeth on getting married. When we moved out of there, we found a few days before we moved out, there was a rat that big just the body, then you put the tail on it, it's like that big. It's like fishing stories, huh? Um, huge rat. It was a good house. Lots of good memories. Our boss, my boss, um, was uh, the church executive officer. It was a, she was a woman that um, just made sure everything ran. She wasn't a pastor, but she just made everything work right. And it would be fair to say that, um, how do I want to put this in case she's listening? Um, we had conflict. We had tremendous conflict. But most of the conflict actually was in my head. Most of the conflict wasn't, wasn't heated. We didn't have have arguments and fights and screaming matches at each other, but there was this pervasive idea that I was constantly displeasing her. And I ran scared. I, I ran scared in this job because my mind map of how situations were playing out, what her size, what her body posture, what her lack of communication or, or Specific communication meant went through all these filters and it would just got all combobulated. And I started to learn how to separate out what these filters were through something called cognitive distortions. There are primarily 10, it's probably more than that, but the 10 main cognitive distortions which start to um, get in the way of relationships is what we're gonna go through right now. And if you start to tag these, you're gonna find some changes. Now here's what I had to do. I actually, this is the actual notebook, okay? I still have it almost 20 years later. It sits in my office. I had to write down whenever we had an exchange, whenever we were doing something, and all of a sudden I felt bad, wrong, I'm inconveniencing her, something like that. I would leave her office and I'd go sit in the corner with a pencil and I'd go, 
right now, so-and-so is thinking this and this and this is about me. I had to literally write it down. I had to get it on paper for me to capture the cognitive distortion. Step one, again, this is your homework if you choose to accept it. Step one is to start capturing the cognitive distortion every time it happens. Don't worry about fixing it yet. Don't worry about changing it. See if you just capture which of the 10 that we're gonna write out here in just a minute, which of the 10 are actually happening. And you have to literally write it down because just trying to do it in your head doesn't cement it into your experience. And what, what I learned is it took me only about four weeks. I think I hit the 20 hour mark pretty quickly because I was constantly writing this thing and processing through this, that the notebook didn't serve its purpose anymore because as soon as something would happen and I'd have a cognitive distortion come into my thinking, I could instantly go, oh, there I am, a mind reading again. Huh, that's not working for me. And once I was able to start capturing it over and over and over again like that, then I actually came up with what is an accurate assessment of the situation. And then I was able to start correcting it. And right there, that's where I started to find freedom and say maybe my mind map, maybe my perception of reality isn't true. Maybe it is these filters that are a little skewed and I can actually experience life much, much differently. Yes? So what you're saying is by your mind map of avoiding the conflicts, right? that you were avoiding confrontation, therefore building resentments, therefore you were building the conflict that really didn't even exist? That didn't even exist. I, I, she would do something, filter, filter, filter. I would perceive it a certain way. I would respond in my head to her, but not to her, in my head. And then from there, she would respond in my head back to me, and i come up with a counter-argument. I know I'm not the only one who does this, by the way. <laughs> and I walk out of there 20 minutes later, you know, which is really strange because oftentimes I didn't even win those arguments. <laughs> Doesn't that stink? At least if it's in my head, I'm going to win. That'd be smarter. <laughs> Man. Yes? What's a cognitive Great question. Why don't we start looking at them and figure out what they are? Um, cognitive distortion number one is all or nothing thinking. What this is, is using terms like always, never, every. Again, you see this a lot with couples who are working through stuff. He never listens to me. Or, yeah, well, she's always nagging. Yeah. I'm not so sure that it's always or never, but when you start to paint it in black and white terms, when you start to paint it in, this is how life is all of the time, it's like Oregon. I walk out the door and it's always raining. Eh. It's raining most of the time, but it's not always. You can get into the gray zone here and have a more accurate perspective of your reality. So all or nothing thinking, this keeps you entrenched um, because if your performance falls short in any way, you view yourself as a total failure. There is no proportion. I bounced a check, therefore I am a horrible, horrible, horrible. I just, I, I don't know how to manage money at all. No, you bounced one check, it's a little overdraft fee, 
got all your checks in your life have been okay, just once. So you don't get to use one reason to dictate your entire life. Number two, over generalization. This is similar to one of the other main filters of generalization, but this is over generalization. Seeing a negative event as a never ending pattern. Again, lots of these are gonna be similar. They keep you in that kind of black and white poles. Overgeneralization is um, because so-and-so is late um, to work, all my employees are late to work, and I have a crappy business. This, this overgeneralization um, takes an isolated event and makes it a wide generalization. Number two. Number three, we use mental filters. Again, we've already talked about filters, but mental filter Filters are designed to keep certain things out and let certain things pass. Usually, someone who suffers with mental filtering is um, doing what's actually uh, the number one here. We'll combine these two and disqualifying, oh, that's misspelled. Disqualifying the positive. A mental filter is this event has happened and I'm only going to let through typically the negative events in this and I'm, even though there was lots of positive things that happened, I'm going to not count them. It's like they don't count and I'm going to disqualify the positive. So anything good, anything that happened there, what that starts to do is if you allow the positive to come in, it starts to challenge your mind map. And that freaks you out because that's not normal, that's not predictable, that's not comfortable. And so you have to go, I have to make my life look like my mind map again, and I have to disqualify the good things that are happening. Good stuff doesn't count. That's one of the big ones right there. Good stuff doesn't count. A lot of my clients, I get to work with them with this over and over because they truly believe that they are not a good person. They are somehow permanently tainted and flawed. And so, just tell me about your day. They tell me about their day. I can list off 19 good things about them in their day. But if you ask them to list off those 19 things, they go, well, there's a reason why this one doesn't count. And there's a reason why this one doesn't count. And this one, well, I exaggerated on that, so we're not going to count that. And they just don't even let it soak in. Imagine that keeps you just really, really stuck. The reticulating reticular activating system, RAS, right back here, bundle of nerves sitting on top of the brain stem. Know what that is? That's why you find Subarus. Reticular activating system, it's another mental filter. You're starting shopping for cars and you're going, I think I'd like to have a new Subaru. I mean, those, those are pretty cool. And so you start studying Subarus, you start looking them up online, you start learning about them, you start trim packages and colors. What do you start noticing all around town? Is that because more Subarus are following you? Nope, they've always been there, 
but you, your reticular activating system has kicked them up to the top and it's now filtering them saying this is important, this is important, this is important. And so you, well, you disqualify the positive. It, 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 the reticular activating system can be trained to say I'm only going to notice bad things and I'm going to ignore all the other good things that are floating around me. Changing that around is an important step. Number five, jumping rope. No, jumping to conclusions. That's my main form of exercise. Yes, jumping to conclusions. <laughs> I like it. This is assuming there are negative things when there is no evidence to prove it. This right here, holy smokes, this is what my notebook right here is filled with over and over and over and again because there's two primary ways we jump to conclusions. Number one is mind reading. We believe that we can actually guess what a person's intention was. We believe that we can read what their heart is saying even though they haven't told us. With my boss, I did this all the time. I would get this feeling that she was mad at me for some reason. And it would trigger me into this argument, counter-argument kind of thing, round and round and round. Because somehow, I thought I could read her mind and, and expect her, and, and think that she's disappointed with me, even though there was really no actual evidence for it. Yes? Reading signals versus mind reading. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. So reading nonverbal signals, communication is 93% nonverbal, right? And so we pick up on this. She's, she's displeased, right? The problem is, is when we assume that it is us. She might be displeased. We might be reading that. But assuming we know exactly why she's displeased is where we get into trouble. Again, I probably tell you too much about myself. I should stop that. This mind reading right here got me into trouble all the time with my wife. Because my wife would be upset about something. And because of my own insecurities, what did I assume? And so I would constantly be asking her. Honey, are we okay? Honey, did we do something? Did I did I do something wrong? Is it is it my fault you're upset? Which is ironic because here she is. She's feeling bad for whatever reason, and now my insecurity is saying, "I need you to to reassure me here, please." I know you're feeling bad, but I need you to reassure me. Unbelievably selfish, and I had to stop. I had to start saying, "I see something is wrong." but I don't know what it is, so I had to start asking questions. I see you're upset. What is wrong? Instead of assuming, mind reading, it's me. And then she could say, yeah, you forgot to, whatever. Now I'm not mind reading anymore. Now I got confirmation. I screwed up and she's mad at me. Or it could be, I just got off the phone with so-and-so and, you know, the situation over here has nothing to do with me. So we absolutely pick up on nonverbals. It's assuming we know what is actually going on versus being inquisitive. Childlike curiosity, which was written right up here. The other one, mind reading and 
fortune telling. Fortunes told. Fortune telling is anticipating that things are going to turn out badly and getting geared up for it already. Kind of predicting the future and acting as if that negative future has already taken place and so you're just already in a bad mood. I... Uh, yeah, I got to stop telling stories about me. I do this all the time with my boys, and I, I, I wish that I wouldn't do this, but they're playing out in the yard, they're doing something like that, and all of a sudden it's like, this is going to end up badly, they're going to end up yelling at each other and having a fight, so what do I go? Well, I go out there, guys, don't get in a fight in 20 minutes. I just yell at them, I haven't done anything wrong yet, because I believe it's already going to happen, I'm already mad at them. What a way to throw my kids under the bus. That stinks. Just stinks. Fortune telling. Number six. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> ah, it is the power of suggestion, actually. Um, or dad already expects us to get into a fight. We might as well and you know, do the crime if we're going to do the time. Right? Um, magnification and minimalization. Minimalization. Similar to uh, disregard, just calling the positive, but you magnify the negatives, and here is where you acknowledge the positives, but they're not that big a deal. Okay, so instead of just disqualifying them out of hand, instead of just shutting them out completely, no, there's goods and bads. I'm 90% bad and 10% good. And a little subset of this is catastrophizing. How do you say that word? Catastrophizing. Assuming everything is going to be a catastrophe. Again, that is on the trip, there's good and bad things, but I'm pretty sure most of it's going to be bad, and we're going to get a flat tire, and we're going to run out of gas, and all of our children are going to get kidnapped, and um, the hotel is going to lose our reservation, and the dog is going to get sick, and the house is going to burn down. And, 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 and. Over and over and over. One of the other things that play into this, thinking, I want to make sure I get it right here, thinking that a situation is unbearable or impossible when in reality it is just uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Because I'm a little bit uncomfortable, <sighs> there's a phrase that's kind of entered into at least my peripheral awareness right now, and it's a cool phrase um, called first world problems. You guys heard that phrase? It's convicting. It's really convicting. First world problems. Um, when we are upset because 
our new BMW has a scratch on the bottom right fender that you can't see, and that ruins our day, compared to third world people who are just trying to find food to eat. So when we get upset about things that really, in the grand scheme of life, aren't that important. Number seven. Emotional reasoning. This is where you forget that you have two parts to your brain. That's where you make decisions and arguments based on how you feel rather than objective reality. This again is assuming that the mind map is right. It is saying because I feel this way, it is that way. And I guarantee that my feelings are 100% accurate perception of reality. We have two parts to our brains. Well, we got three, we heard that, but two, our brain does two things. It feels and thinks. It's a nice combination how God built us so that we balance out. Because sometimes there's stuff that we don't feel like doing that we probably should do. And sometimes there's things that we need to give more credence to our emotions and our feelings about it because they will steer us a little bit more true path. Balancing that out. Number eight. Shooting on yourself. Should. I-N-G. Should. <laughs> For those that's the first time you heard it, you're going, what did he say? <laughs> is he allowed to say that? This is a church. Um, when we spend a lot of time shooting, it puts an unreasonable amount of pressure on ourselves to behave or be a certain way that we aren't at that moment. It's never really being present and saying, this is, what I am, this is what I'm doing right now. This is what I choose to do. And I choose to do it intentionally, purposefully, without any regret. When you should on yourself, it is, I'm doing this, but I really should be doing this over here. All right, and I'm going to waste all this energy worrying about what I should or shouldn't do. Should have gone yourself. I actually have an assignment that I give lots of my clients who wrestle with this. Um, they have to write out a a sheet. Every time they hear that phrase, I should or shouldn't do something, they write it down on a piece of paper, and then I make them write all of those things on a t-shirt. Literally, write it on a t-shirt and then wear it. I actually encourage them to put that on and then have a dinner, have some friends over for dinner. It's a really interesting conversation starter. It's very interesting. What are you wearing? So what the phrases are, I should I should be better, I shouldn't be late, I should cook dinner perfectly, um, I shouldn't make any mistakes, I shouldn't, or I should, you know, a thousand things you can put the pressure on yourself. Is that just shooting yourself or is it also saying circumstances? Shooting circumstances as well, yep. I should have left earlier. Um, my family should have been. Yep, my family should have been. Yep, they shouldn't have done this and that and that. You can waste a lot of energy and time doing that. Number nine, labeling and mislabeling. Labeling and mis 
labeling. She wears a sash. Um, <laughs> rather than describing the specific behavior, you assign a label to someone or some someone or yourself that puts you in an absolute and unalterable negative term. Instead of saying, you were late tonight, that's addressing a behavior. When you label someone, what would it sound like? You're always late. You're always late. Nope, always is up here, all or nothing thinking. Thank you very much for playing. You are so irresponsible. Even make it more personable. Personal. Slacker. You're a slacker. Thank you very much. That's a label. You're a slacker, right? You're a jerk. This is um, character assassination. This is, uh, again, we see it a lot with couples. Oh, yeah, well, you're a blankety-blank. Oh, yeah, well, you're a blankety-blank. And you stop talking about behavior, and you just start putting good and bad terms. You can also do it on the positive side, right? Man, I am amazing. I am the stuff. That's for all the people who are narcissistic in the room, okay? Man, I, I, I can't even believe these people are so lucky to be with me. I am just that good. Labeling and mislabeling. Finally, um, personalization, Z-A-T-I-O-N. Personalization and blame. Personalization is when you hold yourself responsible for things that are genuinely out of your, out of your possibility of affecting. You just can't, you don't have any power or control personalization. And blame is when you spend a lot of time blaming your circumstances, blaming experiences outside of yourself, and saying they are the reason I am such and such or feeling such and such way. Blaming everything else. So personalization is on one end saying everything's my fault, and blame is nothing's my fault. Both ends of that. Again, when you live on either pole, you tend not to be able to get it balanced out real good. Ten cognitive distortions. Thoughts, feelings? I have a question. Yep. Is there, as far as if we want to look more into this, do you have a book that we recommend? The classic book, um, and it's been around forever. Huh? There you go. Yep. David Burns, Feeling Good. Um, he's kind of the ones who started off with some of this. Um, there's lots of other information out there um, because they didn't have the internet when that book was written. Um, a lot of people ripped off his stuff. Um, anything under cognitive behavioral therapy will come up with a lot of these as well. And again, this is a fantastic starting point because it's hard to deal with some of the feelings components that keep you stuck in your self-perception if you still aren't thinking accurately. So this is a way to, in that whole thinking-feeling side, right now we're leaning a little bit more towards the thinking side, intentionally and purposely. Yes? What if you have cognitive dissonance? What if you have cognitive dissonance? Sounds like a band. What? 
How do you change your mind map if you have cognitive dissonance? Is that what you want to sum it up as? Paralyzed between two thoughts? You just don't know what to do? Yeah. Um, number one, the question is, how do you know you have an inaccurate perception of life if... To resolve cognitive dissonance? It's a good question. Um, let me think about that for a minute. I'm just going to say it loud so other people can hear you. Sometimes it's just too painful to change. So you just keep going. Remember the quote from C.S. Lewis? What's it say? Known hell over an unknown heaven. And you're right. Welcome to the struggle of this whole issue. Because this is painful. But then, what would that be on the cognitive distortions? This is painful. This is uncomfortable. What's which number? Number six? There you go. Because I'm uncomfortable, I can't stand this. It's amazing. It's amazing what you can stand. Well, let's even put it this way. Um, how many of you would rather quit a job or get fired from a job? Let's see. Who, let's do, who would rather, think about it for a second. Who would rather quit a job? How many of you would rather get fired? Really? Why? Oh, we got one hand, brave in the back. Why would you want to get fired? Lone voice in the wilderness. Unemployment. Unemployment. <laughs> Going for the dollars. Depends on why you get fired. Okay. You're going to say? Well, logically, I mean, obviously, if it's on your resume, you quit, but emotionally, it's, um, it's, you have to take less responsibility for it, if you're right, if Yep. And yet, I would say all of you are wrong. Okay? You're all wrong. No. The reality is most people tolerate really bad situations much, much longer than they should have because they're afraid of taking that step and giving up what they know, known hell, and risking something that is they don't know. When I was working for an organization and the company folded, I had to make it work. I was literally pushed off the cliff where if I'm standing on here and making myself, oh, you ever been cliff jumping? Crazy stupid. Okay, crazy. I've done it a couple times. Scares the pants off of me. And getting ready to literally let go of something that's comfortable is just hard. Where if someone comes up to you and does one of these, pushes you off, you still survive the fall, right? 
but the decision wasn't yours to get out of the comfortable situation. And so I would argue that most of you, even though you raised your hand saying I'd rather quit, the reality shows up in studies and everything else that says you wait till you get fired or you wait till some other circumstance out of your control kicks you off that cliff. Like getting someone to break up with you. There you go. It's not me, it's you. No, that doesn't work. So, it is uncomfortable, and choosing to say, I'm going to step into this uncomfortable place to change, that takes guts. That's why this is so hard, and that's why people stay entrenched in their self-perception. Okay, we got, we're going to go another 10 minutes, and then we're going to get out of here. And here's the thing that you have handouts, right? Papers? Here's where we're going to use some of these. We're going to change the filters. Again, my maps, your perception of reality is always altered or um, adjusted by the filters that have stuff coming in. Here's what we need to do to start changing some of those filters. But we have the three tools here, the curiosity, experimentation, best versus right. Um, but we're going to look at... If you look at the first page there, let me see what's actually on this. I can't remember what I wrote on here. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. The areas of change. Okay, the tools that you change are the curiosity, the experimentation, and uh, the best versus right. But here's the areas that play into the ten cognitive distortions that you can actually start to change. Number one is cause versus effect. A lot of people, a lot of people go through their life acting as if life is happening to them. They, they are an effect rather than a cause of things happening to them. When you see yourself as an effect, it puts you into a helpless posture. It means I just have to endure whatever is enduring and you don't have that impetus or that motivation to start challenging the mind maps. And so what we wanna do is have you shift your mentality into seeing that you actually are a cause. You have an effect on every area of your life that is actually within your capability and possibility. Now, here's how I want to specify this because it can get a little... Um, people can play the semantic game. You might not actually have responsibility in every area of your life. You might not be responsible for everything that happens to you, but what would happen if you acted like you did? You got a victim mentality. Say it again? You have a victim mentality. You, you don't have a victim mentality. If you, if you act as if there's bad things happening to me. I don't actually have control over those things, but I still choose to say I have, I have, I'm a cause here. I'm not just a recipient of all these bad things. When you can get into a posture that says I, I'm going to be a cause in my life and I'm not going to be passive anymore and let things happen, even if you can't change the circumstances, you're not in that helpless posture anymore. It reduces the victim mentality. Does that make sense? Yep. It doesn't matter what anybody does to you. It matters what you're going to do about it. So Grandmother's wisdom. If you just take, I mean, you don't just lay down. It's not that you're laying, you don't just lay down and take it. Right, you don't lay down and take it. 
profound shift happens when you, this counters, again, the helplessness. I have a theory as a counselor. I could be totally wrong, but I keep coming up with it. Um, helplessness and ambiguity, I think, are the two worst feelings we have to sit in. Not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what's going to happen at all, terrifying. We'd rather have bad news than no news, right? Because at least we know, at least we just know what we're dealing with. And then helplessness, watching things happen to us and believing we have absolutely, we can't do anything about it, those are really terrifying. So, cause versus effect. Number two, results versus excuses. I tell my clients all the time, I can actually make you achieve your goals faster than you can imagine and with a guaranteed 100% success. How's that for a counseling pitch, huh? I should have people on a waiting list for years with that. Yeah. Here's how I would do it. Give me, let's say someone comes in and says, you know, I, I, I want to lose weight. I'm just tired of how I feel about myself and I want to change. But I've been trying for years and 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 I just can't gain any, can't, can't get any traction in this. Paul, can you help me? Yes, I can help you. Because I'm an incredibly successful counselor, I have a check for $1 million with your name on it. If you can get to a certain weight in six months, check yours. How many of you would take that challenge? <laughs> Absolutely. And every time you thought about eating that, that Twinkie or that Ding Dong, what would you think of? And, you know, I don't want to get up in the morning to exercise. Yes, I do want a million dollars. I'll get up at 3.30 in the morning and start exercising because I'm going to make sure I hit that goal. When, when the reason for change has tremendous value, it's amazing what we can do. And we value a million bucks. But a lot of us say, our self-worth, our self-perception, my health, all these things, we don't see that as valuable enough to provide the motivation. And so we come up with excuses. I'm too tired this morning. I ran out of granola. I da-da-da-da-da-da. It was easier to stop at McDonald's. It was, okay. When we start to give ourselves permission to justify our poor decisions. That's where we start to just stay entrenched and we stop looking at the results. Excuses are usually connected to some sort of limiting belief that you have. I can't, I never, I won't, I always. Which cognitive distortion is that? All or nothing. Number one that was up here. Very good. You guys are so smart. Number three.
Perception is projection. The external world that you see is actually a projection of your mind based upon the filters and the cut down information, all that information coming in. Again, you believing that the map is reality. And so you start to see only what you expect to see. Perception versus projection. I actually spend a lot of time with my clients looking at the words that they say. So when clients say, I can't, I can't do whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'll ask them, really? What is the limiting belief, what's the excuse you're giving that says you can't do that? Are you physically incapable of doing whatever it is that we're talking about? And so we change the words to, it's hard, it's uncomfortable, I don't like it, it's frustrating. All of those are true, but we can do something with that, right? And so if someone can say, my perception of this is hard, yes, that's true, okay? That, that becomes your reality. Or you can go, I've never done this before. I admit I've never done this before. I'm scared, but I'm going to experiment. I'm going to try and see what happens here. And so their world becomes what their perception is. Everyone tracking with that one? It's a good one. <clears throat> Number four, and this is as I have progressed in my therapeutic technique. I used to be pretty heavy on the cognitive behavioral, change your thinking, all of that stuff, but now the mind-body connection, holy smokes, the research and the study, and this is just fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Um, did you know that emotions aren't in your head? Your feelings, emotional feelings aren't in your head? Where are they? Well, you say in your stomach, but they are all over. You get a stomach ache, you get tension in your back and shoulders, right? You get sore muscles. It's, it's physical. And so it isn't just in your mind, but our body responds to this. This is why, again, when we start off this, the nights on Monday nights, what do I have you do with your body? Relax. Because if we change the body, we change the emotional state inside. Those connections are, as I do trauma work, uh, Peter Levine, he's a good author, written all sorts of neat stuff. Um, how this starts to connect is... is uh, we could spend eight more weeks on this one. It's just fascinating. The reason why it's on this list here is because if you think that your feelings are only in your head, you start to ignore what your body is doing. And I've, I watch a lot of my clients, they're sitting in my office, and they sit there, arms crossed, legs crossed, turning away from me, looking down. And I'm trying to get through to them. How receptive are they? So I invite them, what would happen if you put your hands over here, you know, put your feet on the floor, and breathe and relax? Actually, sometimes that's all it takes with my clients, and all sorts of stuff shows up. 
tears start to leak out. Stuff they've never talked about just come out. I haven't done anything except tell them, move your hands, change your feet. But they spent so much of their time tightened up trying to control all of this. Paying attention to what your body is feeling will start to help you understand how your mind perceives the world. It's really cool. I wish, I wish we could spend a lot of time on this. Proverbs 3, 7 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. We've heard that verse over and over. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, shun evil. This will bring health to your body. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Mind-body connection. Finally, number five. <coughs> Responsibility for... Does it say results? I can't remember. When you assume responsibility for your world and you know that nobody else can create the results for you, did you know that no one in this room was born to make you happy? It's not their job. It was your parents' job to take care of you, but that's a limited time gig. My daughter is an adult now, and I desire to take care of her, but it's not my job anymore. She's responsible for herself now, and if her world doesn't work out, I can empathize, but I'm no longer going to rescue. Now again, if she was five, different rules. Parents are here to take responsibility for their children, but once we become adults, we are responsible for our own lives, and nobody else was born to do that for you. When you start to accept that, Again, all sorts of things change. Responsibility. Here's the definition. You are able to respond. Respond ability. I have the ability to respond to anything that happens in my life. When you actually believe that. Again, when I heard this, it's like, holy smokes, this is good stuff. I actually am able to respond to everything. And I can choose whether I have that to be a positive, edifying, encouraging experience for me, or I can choose to make my life much more not so happy. But I am able, when I, when I believe I am able to respond, everything changes. Everything changes. Yeah. You can't control the things that are happening to you, but you can control how you respond to them. Yes. Absolutely. We'll talk about it next week, but again, some people actually believe because something out there bad is happening to me, I don't have any other choice but to get pissed off, angry, resentful, get even. You know, they believe that their choices are limited. And the reality is, mm, no, not so much. You actually have the ability to respond however you like. 
Now what I've done is on the second page of your handout is actually a worksheet. It's similar, it's a glorified, fancy-spancy version of my 79-cent notebook here. As you are encountering situations that you are struggling with, especially when you are having some sort of negative self-talk or some sort of um, unhealthy negative self-perception at that moment, you get to go down the checklist. You get to go through this and you get to say, am I actually acting as if I am a cause or an effect? What is being done to me? Okay, do I think something's being done to me? And then this is what I could do about it, even if I choose not to do it right now. It doesn't mean you have to respond that way, but I have the possibility of, I don't like what my boss is doing, so I could quit. I could quit right now, and I could you know, enjoy the rest of the day off and go to the zoo. That's what I could do. I might choose not to. That might not be the wisest, but I could do that. Or I could, or I could, or I could. This gets you out of the ruts. Uh, results versus excuses. What excuse am I using or normally use? What is the limiting belief? And what result do I actually want? Again, it helps you reframe into, here's what I could do. And you can go down through the rest of these here. Questions at all about that? You can photocopy that. You can use that. You can write on it real small. You can just do it in your head. I actually encourage you not to do that. Don't just do it in your head because it's, We're lazy, sorry. We tend not to be as detailed when we can just make generalizations in our head. When you have to be very detailed about it, lots of stuff changes. And I would guarantee you, you do this for a brief time, you're gonna get so good at it, you'll start capturing it over and over and over really, really fast. So make photocopies of that um, or make up your own thing that you use. Questions? Really? <laughs> Wonderful. One question. Are you recommending doing this before going Am I recommending doing this before going through the filter? Before, like what you were doing with your notebook you were Right. The notebook, I used to capture the cognitive distortions. The tin there, yeah. I found a lot of mind reading on mine. Always doing mind reading, always doing mind reading. Sometimes it was all or nothing thinking, sometimes it was this. When I start to capture that, that helps me fill in the things on here because then I can say, what's the limiting belief here? Um, uh, let's see, yeah, results versus excuses. What's the limiting belief? That's where a cognitive distortion can fit in there. You can do them conjunctual, you can do them concurrently, you can do them independently. Um, you can do neither if you want, but <laughs> you tend to get more if you do something. Um, yeah, there isn't one right way of doing this. Experiment. How about that? There's an idea. See what happens. All right. The most important discovery of our time is the realization that we can alter our lives by altering our attitudes. William James, who's considered the father of modern psychology, wrote that, but I think he was coming late to the party. Because in Philippians it says, finally, my friends, keep your minds on whatever is true, pure, right, holy, friendly, and proper. Don't ever stop thinking about what is truly worthwhile and worthy of praise. 
that was written a few days before William James came up with his. <laughs> but what's really interesting is, Philippians is turning out to be a pretty cool book. Um, just before that passage, it says, don't worry about anything. It's that whole part about not worrying, not letting that stuff kind of saturate you. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything with thankful hearts, attitude again, with thankful hearts, offer up your prayers and requests to God. We do that at the beginning of each thing here. It's the E, express. Then, because you belong to Christ Jesus, God will bless you. And here's, here's the great part. God will bless you with peace. <sighs> peace. I can have peace. I don't have to be worried. I don't have to be stressed. I don't have to be beating myself up. God will bless you with peace that really, sometimes it doesn't make sense. Isn't that weird? All the circumstances should be telling me I should be freaked out, I should be worried, I should be stressed out. But because your mind is in a different place, because you're dealing with this stuff, the peace that passes understanding, some passages say will guard your heart and your mind, feelings, thinking. This version says, and the peace will control the way you think and feel. Isn't that amazing? It's just uber cool. And then he says, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's good, think on these things. I made it up. Um, I don't remember. Sorry. Maybe uh, look under the contemporary English version. If not that, then the new English translation. And if not that, then the revised Elmore edition. <laughs> We can change. Let's do that this week and come back and be very different people. What do you say? Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.